Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. As this morning we come to the last passages, the last verses in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, at least the overview. So we told you before, beginning at the beginning of the year, we will come back and go more in detail, looking at the Lord's Prayer in detail, and then each of the Beatitudes as well. So we'll be here, so you can leave your marker or your pages dog-eared however you want to. Uh, we'll be back, but in terms of looking at the service, uh, overall sermon, uh, this morning we come to the end of it. I was thinking this week that there's probably uh, not a week that goes by when I don't receive some sort of brochure announcing the latest conference, promising everything that anyone could ever imagine, or the product that would provide us the whatever is lacking in our lives for spiritual growth. In short, they're products for pastors that guarantee that if I was to just buy their product, go to their seminar, you all would be the people that would make every other pastor envious. We would all be the people that we're supposed to be. We're just lacking, just missing whatever it is they have to sell. Now, to be honest, a lot of those things are, there's some good things that they have, and, and not, uh, some of them are, are certainly important aspects of the Christian life. I'm always amazed that they all seem to be selling the key, and they are all very different. Uh, they all have their own slant on the things that are lacking. And so I guess there is a sense in which it is expecting that we will be discerning as to how we apply whatever it is that we need uh, within our own context and in our own lives. But there's times that I look at these things and they come in the mail and I just can't help but thinking of late night commercials on TV, you know, these gadgets that I, I, I have to wonder if they're so good, why does no store want to carry them? But they promise your life will be so much better with them. But there's another sense in which it brings to mind something from the garden. It really is more like a matter of the miracle grow with the promises that they make. Now, I don't know, I'm not a gardener, so I don't know how it works, but my understanding is you just kind of pour it on your plant, stand back and watch, and poof, and it'll be, come to full maturity and blooming, and everybody will be excited and pleased. And to some extent, that's what these products tend to proclaim, that if we were just to do this, all I need to do is pour it on you, we would all bloom together in full beauty and excitement. This came to mind, really, because as I was looking at the passage that we're looking at this morning and thinking over the past several weeks, as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, what we have here is, in essence, Jesus' direction for blooming, for spiritual maturity, for being what God has created us to be, to find the fulfillment that we all long for and all want. Jesus' instructions are both deep and complex and broad, applied in every aspect of our lives. But at the same time, as we read through this, we're reminded that Jesus, while he gives, in essence, we see him as a great lawyer summarizing, giving a great summation to what he has taught and giving a directive for those who are the listeners of his, of his sermon, he in no way considers anything simplistic or simple. It's a lifelong process of walking with him, of being graced by him, and growing in him. As we look at these verses, we also realize in his summation that Jesus reminds us of something that we don't often talk about, at least not in the church. But Jesus seems to be suggesting to us that to be a follower of Christ is narrow, 
and exclusive and by its very nature hard, even though the promises are more glorious than we can imagine. But most of us tend to like things that come a little bit easier, things that are simple, and so we, we don't speak much about some of the negative or what might be considered negative promises that Jesus makes. The difficulties, the growing pains, the frustrations, the failures, the dry seasons that all of us who are in Christ are certain to endure. And as I was studying this week, I was reminded of another time when Jesus had been meeting not only with the disciples, but with many, many other people. He had just finished feeding the 5,000, the masses. He could have been elected governor. They wanted him to be the king. And Jesus began sitting down, and his campaign speech after they said, let's make him the king, is to tell them very difficult things. If you can't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. Most of the people hearing that after just eating were kind of disgusted, and so they began to get up and walk away because as they were heard mumbling while they were leaving, these words are hard. Who can follow them? Jesus then turns to his disciples and he said, do you want to leave me too? And Peter, who is often lifted up because of his response, as we look at it in a shorthand, but we miss what really he is saying with what he's not saying. Because when we read the account, what Jesus said, when Peter says to Jesus, when Jesus says, do you want to leave me too? Peter's response is, where else would we go? Lord, you have the words of life. And in one sense, it's a very simple and beautiful expression of faith and an understanding of the reality that only in Christ do we have life. But hear what Peter really is saying here. Hearing these hard words, understanding sometimes it is difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter's essentially saying by what is not said, uh, Lord, we, we would. We might want to go somewhere else, but we have nowhere else to go because you have the word of life. Those words are not recorded, but nevertheless, that's the implication. I mean, if somebody says, do you want to leave me too? And they say, where else do I have to go? In other words, it sounds like they've given it a thought and they've come and weighed that this is the best place to stay. He didn't say, no, never, at least not at this time. It's because the disciples who were the closest to Jesus understood two things, that Jesus, when he was teaching to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is not necessarily an easy thing, nor do we always understand. But the rewards, the benefit, far outweighs whatever it is that we think is difficult. Jesus says he gives us these last passages, not only as a great attorney who is giving his summation, but as a teacher, he distills it down into four practical applications that we need to understand. And yet even in these applications, there are two particular truths that we will see as we wrap it up that remind us of the essence of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ and where those who follow him will find their strength and ability to grow. Let's look at the passage together. Beginning our reading this morning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by the fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do pray that the word that you have given to us would be life to us. and pray that you now, by your Spirit, would open our minds to understand our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive, that your word planted in us would bear the fruit of righteousness, of eternal life. Lord, we plead with you, for you are the one who must be at work, but we plead with you with great assurance, for you are the one who has promised that your word will never come back empty. Let your word do its work in us now, We consider it and honor you by meditating upon it. We pray all things in the name of Christ, for his sake, and for our benefit. Amen. As we look at this particular passage, Jesus is giving us really kind of four different instructions. They are related. There's somewhat of a bookend of the essential nature of the teachings. The two very primary teachings come in the first and in the last, and we'll, we'll see how they connect as we wrap it up. The first instruction that he gives us is one that is familiar to many, nevertheless important, necessary, that we relay that foundation. Because Jesus is reminding us that the way is narrow. That's what he begins and tells us that essentially... It all boils down to the fact that there are two gates. And there is a gate that is wide and a gate that is narrow. The gate that is wide has many people from all over the world coming to it. The gate that is narrow, we're told, is also has people from all over the world coming to it. One is a promise of ease, and one is a promise of more difficulty. But Jesus is telling us that really imploring us, begging us, well, maybe not begging, but demanding us 
to be wise people who will choose to go through the narrow gate, to use the narrow gate and the narrow gate alone. Because he says that the way of the wide gate, while it seems easy, ultimately it leads to destruction. And whether that's a destruction at the end of the road or a destruction somewhere along the road, Jesus, who is the creator of all, is saying that the way that is most traveled is the way that takes you away from our God. But he's reminding us that the gate that seems less popular, the gate that is narrow, I find it interesting because in the King James, uh, they, rather than narrow gate, they call it the, the straight gate, which gives us kind of a picture of what this gate actually is like. Because straight is not really a matter of, you know, its hinges are on correctly. You know, the straight gate. I don't know what a crooked gate necessarily looks like. So he's not talking about the actual gate, but he's talking about the straight gate. He's giving a condition of it. Because the word straight is not as if there's no curves in the gate, but it would be the word straight like we might use when we think of the, you know, the Barrow Straits or the Straits of Magellan, straits that ancient seamen used to have to navigate, which tended to be very narrow and very complex and sometimes very treacherous. They might seem somewhat constraining, and they're difficult, and they can make those who are sailing through them feel quite uncomfortable. Nevertheless, those were the only passages through which those who were sailing the vessels would be able to utilize in order to get to their destination. While they were not necessarily appealing, uh, they, never, uh, they were the only hope of arriving. And so ancient sailors and sailors today would navigate these, but in ancient days they would do so without the benefit of being able to minimize. They did it and cho- chose wisdom, and they would go a way that very few people would. Jesus is saying, look, the way of life, and he's distilling it down, saying, using this imagery of saying, there's two gates, and there's two pathways, because he does talk about the pathway that leads to the wide gate. He's talking about there's choices that we make. There's two different avenues. And we need to be very clear as to which one we are on. Now, that does raise the question, and really from a practical standpoint, we do want to ask ourselves which road are we on. The only way to understand which road we are on is to recognize how we get on the road that Jesus is encouraging us to get on. It's vitally important that we understand, while Jesus doesn't touch about it here, all of the scripture tells us that every one of us, born after Adam, was born on the wide road, on the easy road, on the wide gate. Now that may seem somewhat strange to some. Some of you were certainly born into blessing and prosperity. Others of you were born into more difficulty and have had to work your way, or you're in the process of working your way to comfort or to wherever it is that you are. Not everybody has had the same blessing. But nevertheless, every one of us who were born into sin were born on the wide road with the entire world. A way that we are naturally inclined to. A way that we are comfortable on. A way that we are encouraged because, well... Everybody we know is on that road and on that road leading to that gate. In order to be on the gate that leads to the narrow road or on the road that leads to the the narrow gate, there has to be a very definite shift that takes place because no one is born onto that road. It comes through faith in Christ alone, the recognition that we are on a road that is leading to our destruction and that that road is of no benefit in the long run, no matter how much it may prosper us in the short run. Jesus is saying we need to understand that each day 
there is a road. We choose which road we are on. By faith, that comes by God's grace to us to open our eyes to recognize the road that leads to destruction. He also opens our eyes to the road that leads to life in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is being very clear here, and he's saying there's only one way, and it's through a narrow gate. It's through a gate that might not be appealing, but nevertheless, that's the way that you will find the hope that you're longing for. Now, it's also interesting because one of the reasons that the wide gate is wide is because most of the world rejects this whole idea. In fact, most of the world would just simply like to build uh, some sort of a bridge between the two gates, and that way you don't have to choose. I don't mean in terms of the individual people in the world, but the assistance of the world, the philosophies of the world, and most of the theologies of religion or non-religion all believe that there is no, this is what Jesus is teaching here, is absolute nonsense. That eventually all roads lead to the same place. When I was in college, I remember taking a number of courses in the Department of Religious Studies. I took classes that would introduce me to Islam, to Buddhism, to Hinduism. Took classes in comparative religions. And it was while I was in a comparative religion class, after having already taken the other classes, that I, it dawned on me one day, and I spoke to a professor who professed to be a Christian, although I have no idea whether he was or not. And I just offered my observation, which he didn't really seem to appreciate. And my observation was this. If you have treated Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism in the same way you've treated Christianity, despite having finished your classes, I'm not sure I know anything about Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Because what they had done in all of those classes, and it seemed to be the permeating philosophy, at least at the University of Tennessee at that time, although certainly it's true in in many colleges, was not necessarily to lie about them, but to cut off the rough edges of each of the religions, and then comparative religion uh, lacked the contrasting of the religion. The whole intent was to show that how all religions are essentially the same. And using what is the academic term mythology, which has nothing to do with whether or not it's true or not, at least in its academic use, they would tell the stories from each of the religion and show how they had the same goal, which was to make good, happy people contented in this life. While I wasn't particularly uh, a mature believer, I knew enough to realize that that was not the ultimate goal of Christianity, happy, contented life in this. It's a benefit, but that's not the aim. The aim is holiness and godliness and forgiveness by God so that we might be reconciled with him. And in this, there is a drastic difference. But most of the world wants to believe that everything is exactly the same. And Jesus says, no, no matter what benefits there may be, no matter what similarities there may be in certain faith systems, and there are some similarities between all of the religions. Almost every other religion has some similarities to Christianity. And for some people, that becomes troublesome, and they begin to wonder, well, maybe these people have a point. Maybe it's not unique and it's distinct. Missiologists, though, have studied this, and they recognize that this is a term just we use. It's just called redemptive analogy. See, in the general creation that God has made all things and revealed himself, all people have some idea that there is a God. And then as we seek to understand God, People share their understandings. Sometimes it comes from just their own instinct and their own stories, and they pass it on. 
Sometimes it's been a distortion of what God has revealed. Kind of like when you were in youth group and you would play the game Pass It On, and somebody says, we're not going to be done by 12, and somebody says, there's an elephant in the closet. By the time you get around, one thing has nothing to do with another. I think I lost some of you there. But anyway, that's a... We'll play Pass It On later on. But anyway, that's... The point being is what is said at the beginning has nothing to do with what it comes out at the end, which can explain some of the distortions and yet, nevertheless, some of the similarities. But because there are similarities, missiologists have said, you know, we can go into each culture and take the stories of each culture and show how what they are valuing is reflected in the promises of Jesus Christ. It is not the same, but there's a similarity that can be used because they are appealing to the specific longing. And so people who are on that wide road through proper use and God's grace, can be, see the hope that they have and come to the narrow road. But many people see that this whole idea, many people see Christianity as just being very narrow. And the reason is because Jesus says it's very narrow. It's not because we are necessarily to be narrow-minded, but in the end, there is only one hope. And Jesus says it comes through the narrow gate. Jesus also warns us that there are false teachers. And he tells us that we need to beware of them. These false teachers are the ones who tell you that there is more than one way. The ones who tell you that any way will do. that they're essentially, they are all the same. Some of them are easy to spot. We might not necessarily call them false teachers because they're teaching consistent with what their views are and they clearly are not declaring Christianity. They're not believers. They're teachers and proponents of other religions. But I think the ones that Jesus has in mind here are not the ones who are promoting other religions entirely, but the very ones who are in the church the very ones who sometimes will invoke and use the name of Jesus, might even acknowledge that Jesus is God who came in the flesh. Sometimes they'll even acknowledge that Jesus Christ died and rose again. But what they teach is not the essential nature of trusting in the person and the work, the death and the resurrection of Christ. They will take the teachings of Christ and teach you a system of rules and behaviors that will promise to you this life now and not worry about the reality of life to come. The essence of Christianity is not ignorant and without concern regard for this life, but it reminds us that through the narrow gate there is another life to come, and those who are in Christ can taste of that now. But the best is yet to come, no matter how good this life may be for any of you, any of us. The principles may still be wise, but in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus is warning people about taking his wise principle and using them for a purpose that will lead you away from the reason he gave them to us taking them as simply being part of a compilation of religion and rules and standards by which we base our lives and then 
assume we're fine with little or no regard to the person of Jesus Christ. The problem is that these people don't come with signs. When I turn on the television set, I've yet to hear one say, by the way, I'm a false prophet, but aren't we having fun here? Some of them are very charismatic. Some of them are very compelling. Some of them are very convincing. And it makes it difficult at times to be able to know who are the false teachers and who are the teachers that Jesus has in mind. The fact that they come in this is not a surprise because Jesus says in this particular passage, they are like wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. In other words, they present themselves as one, but the reality is something inside is very different. But it leads us to the third thing that Jesus instructs us, that we need to have wisdom. He says they will be known by their fruits. It's true for the teacher. It's also true for the followers of Jesus Christ as well, and that we are all known by the fruit of our lives based on the character as well as the teaching. Jesus says that a bad tree, a dead tree, can't bear live fruit. But a good tree ultimately will bear good fruit. The question that we have to ask ourselves, what is the fruit that we are looking for? What is the fruit that Jesus expects? And that, again, has to do with the difference between the narrow path versus the wide path. If we're looking at the fruits and only expecting that as long as what is being taught here leads to somebody becoming a good person or successful or comfortable or happy, all wonderful, wonderful things. But if that is the only fruit that you are looking for, that can be produced from a dead tree. But the fruit that Jesus is talking about might include all of those things, but ultimately has the fruit of godliness, one who desires to be with God, one who recognizes God. There's a difference between happy, successful, comfortable, and humble, and assured. And the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fruit from the good tree, brings that together in a way that makes no sense to people in this world. Because the good tree shares with us both our need and the provision. The bad tree gives us what we want. And that distinction is important. Several of us who are in here have experienced a period of times with, and, and treatment for cancers. The bad tree, one in comfort, would be like a physician who knows that you've had a bad day and doesn't want to make it worse by telling you that after his examination of you, you have cancer. Because who wants to hear about how difficult and how constraining and how painful or hard the treatment is to remedy your condition? And so rather than telling you your condition, they just tell you nice things that will make you have a good day. Whereas the faithful physician, whether he's articulate or charming or just blunt or direct, knows that you need to know 
he will tell you about your condition and that there's hope. But the hope comes through a narrow range of treatments that for a time may cause you discomfort, pain, to be, have an unpleasant life. Those are the distinctions between the false teachers and the good teachers as well. And the fruit is of the good teacher is the one who points you to life, not to pleasantry. The good teacher, the real teacher, understands that we are humble because of our condition, and yet we are assured because of God's nature. And one of the best that I've ever heard historically speaking about this was from Martin Luther. As he was giving a lecture to his students, and he was talking about the spiritual struggles that he had. As he describes his own life, and he said that he could almost audibly hear a voice of the enemy attacking him on a regular basis, almost daily basis saying, Martin, you are this, and you're this, and you're this. You know, basically, you're worthless. And you struggle with this. You call yourself a teacher. You think that you... And so all of these, the weight of all of his shortcomings, his failures, are being heaped upon his shoulders. And Luther says, but here's my response. As the enemy says, you're nothing. Luther says, yeah, well, so what? I admit that I am as guilty as everything that you've said, but I confess that there is one who is without guilt, who is without sin, who loves me and gave himself for me, dying to take the penalty that I deserved, rose again to set me free. So I may be guilty, so what? But I am assured because he will never let me go. See, that's the fruit of godliness that brings a peace that success never can that the wide path, the wide gate, never can give. The narrow gate tells you what you need to know, not because it wants to dampen your day, but because the one who created it cares and knows and in love is speaking to you so that you can experience the remedy. We need to be clear as to the fruit of not only what is taught, but their lives as well. It is a life built upon grace that will teach somebody to be both humble and bold as Luther, or is it built upon, you can do it. You can be better. I'm not saying there's nothing about those things that are good. That's what makes it confusing. But as Jesus says, he didn't say there's nothing good. He says, ultimately, that leads to destruction. Whether through the gate you find the destruction, or whether you're going to blow out somewhere on the highway, or like the beltway, which is wide and traveled by many people, and if you're ever on it, you recognize that you're sure somebody's trying to do you in, knock you off the road. That is the wide road of this world as well. We need to be clear about that there are false teachers and know them by their fruits. Those who belong to God demonstrate the fruit of godliness. Those who belong to otherwise have to declare essentially a Christless Christianity. Jesus may exist, but your only need for him is as an example to give you the life that you desire. Jesus also says as he wraps it up, here's how we'll know and how the fruit will be cultivated. Everyone who hears, be doers. Here's, I'll just read it in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he moves down and everyone, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. And when the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, 
and the house fell. Jesus not only tells us that there are two gates, but he tells us there are two foundations. And he says, wisdom comes by building your house not on that which shifts and changes, but on that which is eternal and stable, the rock. What he's talking about here is that we don't build our lives on standards and rules and practices, but on the rock foundation of his word. That's where we are connected. The reason we don't build on even good standards is because standards and rules tend to change, at least as we understand them. A few years ago, my oldest son decided to run track when he was a senior in high school. Now, as a child, he, we, were, we were blessed with all of our children, but he had the particular annoying habit of he wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't even try unless he was certain that he was going to be the best. The first time he tried, it wasn't that he could be the best, but the first time he did it, it would be easy and he'd be the best. So there's a lot of things he didn't bother doing because he wasn't certain he was going to be the best or he was certain that he wasn't going to be the best. And track was kind of one of those things. He had run in the eighth grade, and he was pretty good. But then he got to the ninth grade and realized, I'm 14, and there's 18-year-olds, and they're fully developed. And in his case, he still looked like a little, bit, a little kid. So he didn't want to run. He didn't even try. No amount of logic in saying, okay, well, you've run certain things. Here's how fast you run. Here's how fast they run. So, you know, it didn't matter. He wasn't going to be the best. He wasn't going to try. Finally, some friends his senior year said, well, what else are you going to do this spring? So they convinced him to go out for track. And to everyone's surprise, he was good. I mean, really good. I mean, we knew that he would be okay. We knew that he would be good. He was faster than most of the kids on his football team. But he became good, as in one of the best 200-meter runners in the region. And not only just in the Tri-Cities region, but a region that spanned from Roanoke to Knoxville, and including those two cities, a region called the Mountain Empire. The local papers in those regions would continue to compare the times. And there was a really prestigious meet known as the Eastman Invitational, that would invite all of the best runners in any event and all the best track and uh, field athletes from, uh, to come to participate in that uh, from that entire region. And our son was invited to go and participate in that prestigious event. But between the time that he was invited to come and the time that the event took place, something somewhat interesting happened. See, all the people who were invited were elite at least for that area and there were several weeks where they had meets that they would continue to run and as our son would run his meets and improve his time his personal bests at the same time his ranking would drop so when he went from fifth and then improved his time the next week he was seventh now how does that happen how do you do better how do you get better and then be worse at the same time? Well, the answer is because the standards change. The other runners were continuing to run as well, and their times were improving. Some of them improved more than our sons improved. And so while he was still getting better, he wasn't measuring up in the same way. And that's a picture for our lives that are built upon a religion of rules and standards of approval, is we may progress, the reality is those standards change and you never know where you stand. And the promise of Jesus is this, is that that stuff all will eventually, anything that is shifting like that can also be washed away. 
He says that we need to be building our lives on something that is rock-solid foundation, not on anything that can be shifting away. So while rules and things like that are good, they're not the basis of our lives. Something else must be. And it's the rock foundation that Jesus says, those who hear my word and do my word, and he's not talking about just the Sermon on the Mount, but certainly the totality of that, all that he says, they are wise and the other people are foolish. But we also need to realize that to be rooted on the rock foundation means that we are secure in it, united, connected to it. So you don't just put up a cabin on a rock ledge someplace where it's on a slope. It sounds like it would be better than the sand, but if the storms come enough, if it's not secured to the rock, it's still going to be washed off, right? The reality is when we trusted in Jesus Christ, we become united and secured in him. And our faith deepens as we dig down deep into that rock to secure. In other words, the more we know of Christ, the more we know of God's promises, the more we know of ourselves and how great the gospel is, the deeper our foundation into that rock is embedded. We don't become more secure because Christ has us, but Jesus is saying, look, you've got to dig down through whatever might be on the surface. Be secured on the rock. And there you will have wisdom, and you'll be on the path that leads narrow. I'm going to finish up with this because it's important that we understand what Jesus is telling us here because while he has four instructions, there are two primary truths and the other two show us how we recognize where we are. But we need to know that there are two primary truths that Jesus is saying here. We only find what we need through the narrow gate and Jesus is that gate. By no other name does anyone come to the Father and inherit eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the gate. And Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Not a bunch of principles that we live by, but that we are built and rooted and connected by faith in him. And the obedience is the evidence, is the house that we built, the life that we build upon him that is rooted in the rock foundation and part believing is part of what he has commanded. And the difference is not who builds the better house. But the picture that Jesus gives is the one who understands has entered through the narrow gate who now therefore has built his foundation upon the rock. Your life will stand now and through eternity. You see, the conditions that Jesus describes are the same for both the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock, right? They both experience the same storms of life. Wisdom is not who built the better house, but who's on the better foundation. And so Jesus says, here is how you have the benefit of all that I've taught. Know that I'm the gate and I'm the rock. Going through me and being rooted in me will give you the promise of the stability that you long for and far more. That's wisdom. It's through the obedience to all he's commanded to believe and then to respond in the love with, the, with which we receive. Not through religious principles that are a dime a dozen. May we be a people that are constantly rooted to the rock of our salvation, entering through the gate of Christ Jesus alone. And realize, no matter how treacherous the road, no matter how tempting it might, might be to think, 
This road is a little rocky. This must not be the one God has for me. Jesus has told us it may be difficult for a while, but you will stand. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving that you, the rock of our salvation, the hope of eternal life, has come to us because you've loved us. Lord, keep us secure in you, and may we find the joy regardless of our circumstances because our trust is in you, not on our circumstances or ourselves. Lord, may we have our faith rooted rightly, and may it flourish and bloom because the miracle is the blood of Christ that is enabling us to flourish. To you all praise and glory.